year is 1847. And in that year, 1847, an Italian chemist by the name of Ascanio Sobrero synthesized a heavy, colorless, oily chemical compound. And he did so by nitrating glycerol with white fuming nitric acid. The resultant compound of this Italian chemist was called nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin. It was an extremely unstable and highly explosive compound. In 1867, so 20 years later, following a number of industrial accidents, one of which took his younger brother's life, a Swedish chemist by the name of Alfred Nobel, figured out how to make nitroglycerin commercially successful by combining it with diatomaceous earth. You know, the stuff you put in your pool filters. The resultant product was called dynamite. It was called dynamite. And it was patented by uh, Nobel. Actually, he was very tight in his patenting of this Product in such a way that it made him an extremely wealthy man. And, of course, the Nobel Peace Prizes are in his name and originally funded by him with the proceeds of the sale of dynamite, which in and of itself is sort of an interesting historical fact. During World War I and World War II, nitroglycerin was manufactured in very large quantities, and it was a military propellant many ways. In 1878, Dr. William Morell began treating his heart patients with small diluted doses of nitroglycerin to alleviate angina and reduce blood pressure. A few months before his death in 1896, Alfred Nobel was prescribed nitroglycerin for his own heart condition. And he wrote to a friend and said the following, quote, Isn't it the irony of fate that I have been prescribed nitroglycerin to be taken internally? They call it Trinitrin, so as not to scare the chemist and the public. Indeed. And beloved, the same highly volatile and dangerous chemical compound can either take a life or save it. It depends on how and why it is used. And the same is true for anger. The same is true for anger. So open up your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We are looking this morning at verses 26 and 27, and I've entitled the message, Learning How to Be Angry. Learning how to be angry. And you might think, I don't need any lessons. But actually, oh, yes, you do, as do I. Let me just read the text for you. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Be angry 
and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now this is the section, the uh, section of Paul's letter here where we are in the midst of the transformation of, of the the ethic of the reader, those who have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and have come to faith in understanding the Lord Jesus Christ and have been transformed through faith union with him, that Paul is now speaking to the reality that they need to bring their lives and their, and their ethics in line with their new status as a follower of Christ. And he's speaking to them and he's speaking to us. And so he in verse 25, uh, deals with lying, and he says that with lying, there's no place for it. For the Christian, there's no place for lying in your life anywhere. And verse 28, if you let your eyes drop down to that, he says there's no place for stealing in the life of the child of God. But the emotion of anger, which is between these two, is more nuanced. It's more nuanced. With regard to lying, put it off. With regard to stealing, put it off. But with regard to anger, it's a little more nuanced than that. Look down to verse 31, where Paul there says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. In other words, there Paul says that the anger and wrath reside as the part of the old man that need to be put off. They need to be put off, and instead, they need to be replaced, verse 32, with kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. So you can see in the same context, there's something going on here with regard to anger that just doesn't reveal itself with a quick and simple reading of the text. It's more complicated than that. It's more nuanced than that. And, And so this morning, that's what we want to do is to try to get at what is Paul talking about here. Now, looking at verse 26 and 27, we notice that structurally there are four imperatives here, four commands. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. So there are four imperatives, four commands that are given here, at least grammatically. And the first one, the be angry, is what's called a present middle imperative, a present middle imperative. Imperative, the idea that there is this, uh, there's an ongoing reality to this command. Now, this imperative has caused a great diversity of opinion among Bible commentators and Bible translators as to exactly what is Paul saying here? How is this, uh, this imperative to be understood? What are we to make of this? And there are a number of different suggestions. I'm just going to give you three, just so you kind of get an idea of the range of opinion with regard to this. The first popular and probably one of the more popular ones is what's called a conditional or a concessional imperative. And and what that means is, uh, it would be translated something like this. If you do get angry... If you do get angry, make sure you do not sin, would be how that's translated. In fact, you see that in the NIV, 
where it's translated, this, uh, this verse is translated, in your anger, do not sin. So it's the idea of that it's uh, concessional. You know, you're going to be angry, but in that anger, don't sin. Another approach, grammatically, is what's called a permissive imperative, where there the idea is uh, be angry, the thought behind it, I can't prevent it, and you can't prevent it, but, but don't sin. So it's called a permissive imperative. This is going to happen. You're going to be angry. You can't stop yourself from being angry. I can't stop you from being angry, Paul would be saying. Just, you know, it's going to happen, but don't sin in it. Okay, so that's another kind of an interpretive approach. The third, which I believe is the right one, is that it is a command. That it is a command. In other words, that there is a moral obligation to be angry as the occasion requires as the occasion requires. There is also a moral obligation not to sin in the expression of that anger. I think that's what Paul's getting at here in verse 26. A moral obligation to be angry in the right conditions for the right reasons and an obligation as well not to sin in the expression of that anger. Now, to further muddy the waters, perhaps, uh, I notice when you look at verse 26, that in your Bible, it's, um, the first part of it is all in caps, likely. And what that's indicating is that this is a citation from the Old Testament. And in fact, it is. Verse 26, Paul is quoting verbatim from the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Psalm 4. It's a, it's a quotation of Psalm 4. And in Psalm 4, the uh, psalmist is being unjustly accused of, of some sort of crime or sin. And although he knows he's innocent, the weight of the accusation is weighing heavy upon him. So the psalmist, in verse 4, uh, writes, Be angry and do not sin. So what does the psalmist mean by that? And that's why I say it sort of further muddies the water a little bit. Because there's, as you might imagine, a difference of opinion as to what's going on in Psalm 4 with the same kind of construction. Some think that David is speaking to the ungodly people who are unjustly accusing him here, and he's counseling them to restrain their anger against him. Okay? The, kind of the idea of the permissive imperative, right? In your anger against me, don't sin. So that he's granting their angry, but he's just saying to them, don't sin against me in your anger. The other approach, and I think it's the right approach, is that David is speaking to himself. He is counseling his own heart. You remember we talked about speaking to ourselves, and I think that's what David is doing. And what David is speaking to himself here, when he says, be angry, do not sin, is he's, he's acknowledging that it is a right to be angry. He is the king of Israel. He is the anointed of God. So the unjust accusation against him here, uh, he should be angry about because it, it attacks the glory of God. But in his anger, he needs to restrain himself and not sin. So I think, again, it's that idea of the command. So, Verse 26 of Ephesians chapter 4, with all of that sort of as background, I believe is a command to a righteous indignation. A righteous indignation. Now think with me, just contextually. The, the, the recipients of this letter that Paul's writing are, are Gentile believers who have come out of rank paganism. 
Right? Ephesus was known for its darkness. It was a, a very dark, spiritually dark and, and pagan city in which they were much steeped in their idolatry, in which their consciences, Paul has said earlier, right, have been dulled by sin, and, and they have gotten to the point where sin doesn't really bother them anymore. They have, they have learned to live in that environment. And so what Paul is basically saying to them, I believe, is that this is what characterizes your old man. You're comfortable in sin. And that has to change. That has to change. You've lived in sin. You've known nothing but sin. But everything has changed, and including has to be your attitude towards sin. I'm reminded of the words of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6 and verse 15, writing to Israel, who was at that time also steeped in her own idolatry. And God speaks of them, and he says, Were they, that is Israel, ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. In other words, Israel had become so steeped in her idolatry that it didn't bother her anymore, it didn't even embarrass her. There was no blushing involved at all. And so I think the same basic kind of idea here for the, for the recipients of this original letter is they have been steeped in sin, and it doesn't bother them. And it needs to. It needs to. Once God has opened their eyes to the beauty of Jesus Christ and has changed them, then they become that new creation, and the new creation needs to change the way anger operates in their life. All right? Instead of becoming angry for the wrong reasons, they learn to learn to become angry for the right reasons and in the right way. And I think that's the same for you and I. I think by extension, this text applies to you and I. One of the effects of becoming the new creation in Jesus Christ is learning how and when to be angry. Learning how and learning when to be angry. So, structurally, what I have here for us is the four commands. Okay, the four imperatives are four commands, and they're four commands that need to be simultaneously obeyed. Four commands that need to be simultaneously obeyed in order to biblically learn how to be angry. In order to biblically learn how to be angry. So, the first. The first command is reverse your complacency. Reverse your complacency. Paul says, be angry. Be angry. Beloved, sin does not shock us like it should. Sin does not shock us like it should. We are daily inundated on the news with the effect of sin all around us and its devastating consequences. We hear about theft. We hear about fraud. We hear about rape and murder and pornography and abortion and, and sex trafficking and on and on it goes and we turn away and we block it out and we become numb to it. We become numb to it. We are also in danger of becoming numb to the lesser sins that frequent the church. We are, we are in the danger of numbness to things like gossip. We are in danger of numbness to things like slander or factions 
or criticism or irreverence or immorality and fornication. These things don't bother us like they should. We don't get angry. We don't get angry. And as one writer says, in the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. Angry, not apathetic. Indignant, not tolerant. Angry, not apathetic. And my friends, I think there is great danger of apathy in my life and in yours. So we need to reverse the complacency that characterizes our lives. I want to give you some examples, some examples of righteous anger, of a righteous indignation. They are all over the scriptures. It begins with God himself. God is angry about sin, and he reveals and displays that anger all the time in the Old Testament, all the time. For example, and turn back with me to Exodus chapter 4. We'll thumb around here a little bit. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 14. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 14. Actually, let's pick it up in verse 10. Exodus chapter 4 beginning in verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, nor recently, nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. God had told Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to let my people go. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. God was angry with Moses over his unbelief, over his refusal to accept the fact that God had called him on a mission to give a message and God would empower him to fulfill the mission to which he had called him. God was angry with Moses' unbelief. You can look over to chapter 22 of the same book. Chapter 22 of Exodus, verses 21 Through 24. God speaks here through Moses to his people, and he says, You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. And my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God is angry about the mistreatment of the helpless. The here, the stranger, the the widow, the orphan makes God mad. It makes him angry when people mistreat those who are helpless. Look over to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. 
And verse 1. Numbers 11.1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Look over to chapter 12 and verse 9. We're here, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, verse 1, questioning his leadership. Verse 9, so the anger of the Lord burned against them, and, and God rebukes them. Verses 6 and through 8, God rebukes Miriam and Aaron for their failure to, to submit themselves to the leadership of Moses. Of course, Miriam, you know, is struck with leprosy and so forth. So what can we understand from this? We can understand from this that the grumblings of God's people and the resistance to his leadership that he appoints over them draws the anger of God. It draws the anger of God. We can look at 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And verse 7. Uh, maybe we'll pick it up in 6. 2 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 6. Here David is moving the Ark of the Covenant into his capital city, Jerusalem. And the Ark has been put on an ox cart and is being brought into the city in direct violation of God's word in Numbers chapter 7 and verse 9 to the sons of Kohath who are to move the, the ark and its furnishings and where they are told it shall not be put on a cart, it shall be carried. But here they put it on a cart, verse 6, but when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzziah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen nearly upset it, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and, the Lord, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Why was God angry to the point of executing this man? He was angry because of his rebellion, his refusal to do it the way he had been told to do it, and his presumption to think that his hand was somehow cleaner than the earth that God had created. And so he touched forth his, stretched forth his deviled hand in order to keep the ark from falling into the mud. And God would rather have his ark in the mud than it would be to be touched by the defiled hand of a human. And so he died. Back to Exodus 32, where here we see the anger of Moses. We've just looked at a number of examples of the anger of God. How about the anger of his people? Exodus 32, in the anger of Moses. Exodus 32 is the account of the golden calf, right? Moses is up on the mountain and is receiving from God the law. And, it, and it's engraved on two tablets of stones by the very finger of God. And while Moses is up there, the people rise up in rebellion against God and they, and they engage in, in sexual immorality and they, and they speak to Aaron and they say, you know, we don't know what happened to Moses. Why don't you form us a, a, an idol of, for our God? And so Moses, you know, the whole thing, I threw the gold in the fire and man, look what came out. He casts his golden calf and says, here Israel is your God. Here is the representation of your God. 
And so Moses hears the commotion and so forth. Verse 7 of chapter 32, And the Lord spoke to Moses. He says, Go down at once for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and have said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make you a great nation. But Moses intervenes, verse 11, and he entreats the Lord to have mercy upon his people. And so God relents at that point, and Moses goes down from the mountain, and there in verse 19 it came about, as soon as Moses came near the camp, and he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hand and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water, and he made the sons of Israel to drink it. Moses pleads for his people and smashes the tablets because of his righteous anger at their idolatry, at their rebellion. We see righteous anger in King David in 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 12. Here is David, a man after God's own heart, who is ensnared in his own sin. And yet we can see a righteous anger wells up in this righteous man. 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel 12, and beginning in verse 5. You know what has happened here. This is where he has taken Bathsheba, another man's wife, and, and committed adultery with her, and then arranged for her husband to be executed by putting him at the front of the battle and withdrawing from him and just compounding his sin in all of this, and then living in it for probably a year or so. And then verse 5, uh, or chapter 12 rather, the Lord sent, verse 1, sends Nathan the prophet to David, and he came to David and he tells him a, a story. And he tells him a story about two men, one rich and one poor. And he, and he says the rich man had all had an abundance, and he had an out-of-town guest coming in, and uh, he could have really given anything to, to, to care of this guest, but there was a poor man who had this little lamb. It was the only thing he had in his household, and his, his heart was attached to it, and yet the rich man took the poor man's little lamb and slaughtered it and served it to his guest. Verse 5, after David hears this, it says, David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. You are the man, David. And David did make restitution he lost four sons. He lost four sons. David's righteous indignation, his righteous anger was aroused by the wealthy taking advantage of the poor, even though he himself were guilty of that very same thing. We can slip over to the New Testament. We can slip over to the New Testament Again, we're just kind of jumping around here a little bit, but we can look at the life of the Apostle Paul. 
the life of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2. Paul in Galatians chapter 2. After heading to Jerusalem to defend the gospel of grace there at the Jerusalem council and receiving the right hand of fellowship from Peter and John for their work among the Gentiles, we find here in verse 11 that Peter has a moment of spiritual defection, that he pulls back from table fellowship with the Gentiles, and in the process of doing that, he undermines and subverts and perverts the very gospel of grace. And so verse 11, Paul says, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Can you imagine being there for that? You got the Apostle Paul getting right in the face of the Apostle Peter and saying, you are wrong. You are sinning in your behavior. And the rest here of chapter 2, I believe, is Paul's stinging rebuke of Peter. His stinging rebuke of Peter. And lastly, we have the Lord Jesus Christ himself. huh? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. We can turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and gain an insight into the heart of the Savior. Mark chapter 3. Jesus entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there, verse 1, whose hand was withered. And they, that is the Pharisees, were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. He was angered by their hardness of heart, by the fact that they would leave this man in his misery over the keeping of their own ridiculous Sabbath laws. He was angry with their hardness of heart, with their unbelief, particularly those who were called of God to shepherd the people of God, the very leaders of Israel. We see in Mark chapter 11, the anger of the Lord Jesus Christ flaring again, being demonstrated at the abuse of the temple. In John 2, 2, 13 to 16, his first cleansing of the temple, the disciples remembered that the prophet had said that the zeal for the, for the Lord would consume me. And here we see it at the end of his ministry. In chapter 11, verse 15, Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. 
Listen, I've been on the Temple Mount. It's about 35 acres. He drove out the money changers, and he would not permit anyone to cross over this 35-acre property. You are talking about a man who is consumed with passion to be able to, to affect his will in that way upon those who were defiling the temple of God. Jesus was angry. What can we learn? What can we learn from all of these examples? And these are but a few. What can we learn? Well, we can learn this, that sin displeases God. That sin displeases God. And that we bearing the family image, it should displease us too. It should displease us also. Sin ought to produce strong emotions in us. Emotions of displeasure. Beyond that, we can discern that the the instances of anger come in response to serious spiritual defection. They are not just merely being perturbed over some piccadillo. It is is the reality that a serious spiritual defection is going on among those who claim allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the law of God. And it draws the wrath and anger of God and of the people of God. We can also discern that God's anger rises slowly. It rises slowly. It is not explosive, nor is it out of control. It is shocking when it happens. And the reason it is shocking is because we, as people, are so dulled into our complacency that when it finally happens, we're shocked by it. But God himself to Moses in Exodus 34, as he reveals himself to Moses, notice how he does so in his name for himself. Exodus 34 and verse 6, where he says... the. It says, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Slow to anger. God is slow to anger. And as his children, we are to be slow to anger too. We are to be slow to anger as well. One writer says, The wrath of God is the clearest example I know of how to get good and angry. Good and angry. And that's the title of his book, David Paulson, Good and Angry. The wrath of God is the clearest example I know of how to get good and angry and be patient, merciful, and generous at the same time. Beloved We need to reverse our complacency. But there is a danger. There is a danger that lies close in hand. The danger in the reversing of our complacency is that our anger can quickly go from righteous to unrighteous. It can quickly become an occasion to sin. Our anger can be like a nuclear reactor in which the fuel rods are not cooled And the reactor goes into meltdown mode and spews radioactive, dangerous radioactive waste all over the countryside. 
We are to be angry, but we need to have control in that anger. We need to guard against the danger of righteous anger morphing into unrighteous anger. And that's exactly what Paul will now do back here in Ephesians chapter 4. The second half of verse 26 and verse 27, he provides three commands. Three commands that are counterbalanced to that first one. To that first one. Three commands that counterbalance it. So our first command was to reverse our complacency, right? The second command given here is to restrain your passions. To restrain your passions. Verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. And yet do not sin. Because anger is a very volatile substance. A very volatile substance. And even righteous anger can easily become corrupted. It can easily turn into bitterness and resentment and and self-righteousness and various destructive thoughts and behaviors. Beyond that, I, I think frequently, folks, frequently I think that our anger, that we might call righteous anger, anger for the glory of God, is probably not really that that often it is anger that our glory has been somehow diminished. And I think that happens. I think it often happens for Christians when we, what I call, baptize our ambitions. In other words, we, we see our ambitions to do things from God as God's um, call upon us, as, as God's way of doing things. And when that happens, then when there's frustrations or roadblocks or or people don't fall in line to help us with our God-given ambitions, we become angry. And the truth of the matter is we're angry because it's our will that's been frustrated, not God's. Not God's. I think it's a real danger, particularly if you are zealous for the Lord this morning. Be very, very careful. Be very careful and do not attribute to God that which originates in your heart. Hold your ambitions loosely. Hold them with an open hand. Do not have a stranglehold on them. God reserves the right to change your plans anytime he chooses. Anytime he chooses. And just thinking about the danger here of the passions that can be unleashed with anger, one writer says, anger is an acid that destroys its container. I thought that was a good quote. Anger is an acid that destroys its container. In other words, if you're a person in which your passions run rampant, in which anger wells up in your heart, it will destroy you. It will destroy you. And because anger can so easily get out of control, because our passions can so easily get out of control, because we can so easily slip from righteous indignation into a personal uh, wrath or anger, then the New Testament counsels us to be slow about anger, doesn't it? In James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He writes a little later in the same letter, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... This is the idea about our baptized ambitions. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, 
then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Anger is a dangerous and volatile emotion. Again, another, the same writer, he writes, quote, Lack of control over anger may be evidenced by how long it is held as well as how vigorously it is expressed. How do I know that I have control over my anger or not? Well, how long have you been angry? How long are you hanging on to this thing? And how do you go about expressing this anger? And that leads us to Paul's third command, his second to counterbalance the, the command to, to reverse our complacency, where he says, essentially, release the offender. Okay? Reverse your complacency, restrain your passions, release the offender. Second half of verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Hanging on to anger for whatever reason puts us in a vulnerable position. And so Paul commands us to let it go. Let it go. No matter how righteous it is, be angry, but then let it go. But then let it go. This, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is not a literal command, by the way, by which sunset is some fixed point in time. This is rather a warning. It's a warning about brooding over your anger. It's a warning about nursing your anger. It's about letting your anger fester. And Paul says, don't do it. Do not nurse that anger within your your bosom. Do Do not brood upon the anger. Do not let it fester. It's really a wisdom statement. It's really a wisdom statement. I mean, if you're a husband and wife and you've got a disagreement and it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of the winter, Paul is not saying you've got an hour to resolve this. You know? That's not the point. What he is saying is, is that we're not to hang on to it. We're not to hang on to it. Once the anger has been generated, even righteous anger, then we've got to let it go quickly. We need to release the offender. We need to release the offender, and we need to resolve the problem as as quickly as practically possible. If it's a husband and wife, as soon as practically possible, resolve the problem. But do not nurse that anger. Do not hang on to that anger. Do not brood in that anger. When it comes to releasing the offender, I find the words of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones helpful here. It's a rather extended quote. I've got it for you. Let me read. He says, You may have a great struggle with yourself, but do not go to rest until you have settled it. You may have to argue it backwards and forwards. Go on, I say, until you have realized the love of God in Christ to you, until you have seen Christ bleeding and dying on the cross that you might be forgiven. Dwell on it until he has melted your heart and broken you down and made you sorry for the one who has offended you and until you forgive freely. Then, but not until then, get into your bed and put your head down on the pillow and sleep the sleep of the just and the righteous and the holy because you have a right to do so and you will be doing it as the Son of God himself did it. 
and you will have acted in your life and domain as God himself has acted with respect to you. In other words, go to the cross. Humble yourself before the cross of Christ. Recognize that Christ has forgiven you, right? Verse 32, the same chapter. And then don't hang on to it. Let it go. Now, if you're the kind of person like me who likes to go to bed by 10 o'clock at night, i got to get rid of things really quick. I don't have a long time to chew on it because I'm tired. But stay up if you need, but go to the cross and unburden your heart. Reverse your complacency, restrain your passions, release the offender, and fourth command here, recognize the danger. Recognize the danger. Verse 27. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not give the devil an opportunity. The greatest danger of unbridled anger is that it provides an opportunity for Satan. It provides a a foothill for his own evil purposes. When we hang on to anger, we open up a base of operations for Satan himself. And from that, he will create destruction, both in our lives and in others. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Beloved, prolonged anger ought to terrify you. It ought to terrify you because if you are prolonged in your anger, if you are brooding in your anger, if you are nursing that anger, then you have thrown wide open the gates of the city and you have invited the invader in. You have invited the invader in. This is true of your own spiritual and emotional health and it is much more so true even in the context of the local church. Remember, this letter is written to a local congregation. And so the the danger of the foothold of Satan is in my heart, yes, but its greater danger is his foothold in this congregation, in this family of God. Anger throws open the gates of this city and invites the evil one to come in. The Proverbs say in Proverbs chapter 30, in verses 32 and 33, if you have been foolish exalting yourself, Or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds. Pressing the nose produces blood. And pressing anger produces strife. In other words, to to hang on and to push and press your anger will only produce strife among the people of God. Church splits come... When offended parties will not let it go. They will not let it go. And soon what happens is others begin to take sides and to line up like little tin soldiers on both sides. And they face off across the battle line. And by that point in time, to to compromise is the equivalent of heresy. It becomes a spiritual war. and And in a religious war, nobody takes any prisoners. It is destruction. So anger in the congregation, not dealt with, produces destruction. And all the while, Satan laughs because another lighthouse, his witness has been extinguished. 
This is very, very, very serious business. Beloved, God would have us be angry. There's no denying that. He would have us be angry, but he would have us be angry with the right things and for the right reasons. And then he would have us act upon our anger in humility, turning to the cross of Jesus Christ, remembering how we have been forgiven much so that we might forgive much. He would have us preach that gospel to ourselves and to others that we might effectuate their restoration, their recovery, the healing of the unity of the body. This is what it means to learn how to be angry. May the Spirit of God apply the truth to my heart and yours. Let's pray. Our Father, there has been some strong words this morning. As we are confronted, Lord, with our own anger, and there is not a person here who is not guilty of unrighteous anger and is not guilty of failing to be righteously angry. Our Father, we are so far from the mind of Christ in these things. But our Father, we want to have the mind of Christ. We want to be like the, the gentle healer who was so compassionate with people, who, who extended himself to the very lowliest of society and whose eyes flashed with anger at the religious hypocrisy of the leadership of Israel. We want to be zealous for your glory, Father. We don't want to make peace with sin, not with our own and not with the sins of the congregation. But our Father, we need your help, for we acknowledge we are dealing with something many times more dangerous than nitroglycerin. That not dealt with properly, anger could explode in our midst and cause massive casualties. Oh, God, humble our hearts. Please deliver us from ourselves. Let us walk in the newness of life that is ours in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.